You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. In the Information Center. And now I'm going to read a quick text from 2 Corinthians. It says, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So here's what I want everybody to do. If you're on this side of the room, I want you to go over to that side of the room. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. (laughs) All the saints greet you, the word of the Lord. Would you please stand for our gospel reading this morning? A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. We are beginning a series called Let's Go Swimming, the invitation and challenge of holy baptism. And somebody asked me recently, of all the things that you could be concerned about heading into this series, what is the number one thing you're concerned about? And for me, it's very simple. It's not the content, and it's not whether or not people will agree or disagree. And I want everybody to hear this, because I think some of what happens in mine and Jacqueline's life is just for us. I think some of what happens in mine and Jacqueline's life is for the church. What I was concerned the most about and what I am concerned the most about in this series is my ability, my inclination to come across like a prosecutor in a courthouse and not a shepherd in a field. There are times when we know that we're entering hot button issues that we become lawyer very fast and the people we're talking to feel like they're in a courtroom and not in a living room. Have you ever felt that way before? Certainly not by me, but just kidding, probably everybody by me. So yeah, it wasn't so much the content as much as more important than content, I think even to Jesus, is our character and the way that we make people feel. Amen? You could have the best doctrine in the world, but if people don't feel like they have access to your life, the doctrine doesn't matter at all. And so there has to be a sense where for me, we're shepherding through this. There isn't one series that's going to make this work. We need to talk about things like baptism, forgiveness, salvation, the sacraments, healing, time management, money. We need to talk about these things all the time, each year, constantly, because what we need is gentle reminders of the life that God has called us to. What I want for us, and so if there's something that you're going to pray for for me, not just for this series, but in general, I would love prayer to be able to have a calm disposition whenever I'm in a situation that is tense. I want to be less tense than the situation I'm in, which if you know me, Yeah, okay. Jesus could walk on water, but can he do that? 
probably not. But let's roll the dice and see if it's possible. What I want for us together is for us to approach this subject and all the other hot-button issues, and some way more hot than this one, to approach our spiritual life, our Christian life, like the disciples on the mountain in the story Yvette just read, and not like people on the sand. So watch this. There are some people who went to the mountain to see Jesus after he had risen from the dead. And when they saw him, many worshiped and some doubted. So there was a mixture in the right place. Everybody say right place. In the right place, in the place of obedience, in the place where they were called to go, there was a mixture of worship and doubt. And every church father commenting on these scriptures will tell you, please don't think, am I the worshiper or the doubter? We are all the worshiper and we are all the doubter. So when we are in the right place, one reality that will take place in our life is uncertainty. Now notice, in the right place, there was a mixture of confidence and fear, worship and doubt, yes and no, this is great, I'm not sure, that all existed in the right place. And guess what Jesus did? He commissioned all of it. He didn't say, for those who are worshiping me, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said to everybody who was in the right place, go into all the world and make disciples. So he spoke to the worshipers as much as he spoke to the doubters, because for him, us being in his presence is more important than our certainty about him. Some of you are uncertain about that. You're in the right place. The people down, we'll call it on the sand, who didn't climb up the mountain, they're in the place of certainty. They know, I don't want to be up there. I never want to be up there. You can't make me go up there. I doubt he's up there, and if he is up there, I don't want to see him anyway. The people down in the wrong place are the certain ones. The people up in the right place are the ones caught between all their thoughts and emotions. So do we want to be in the place of certainty or do we want to be in the right place? Hear what I'm saying and don't think about baptism for a second. In your marriage, in your relationships, in your own self, in your personal walk with the Lord, the closer you get to definitive line drawn in the sand certainty, the closer you're getting to a faith marked more by your ability to believe than the God who believes in you. We can draw lines in the sand. It's really hard to draw lines in a mountain. So come up the mountain because here's why. Everybody who's ever gone up a mountain in the Bible, Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments to do what? To come back down. Jesus goes up a mountain to teach the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, to do what? To come back down. 
Jesus climbs up a mountain to get transfigured to do what? To come back down the mountain and enter the argument that's happening with demons and people at the bottom. Jesus climbs up Mount Calvary with a cross to do what? To come back down that mountain and present his body as resurrected for everybody at the bottom of the mountain. So the flow of the Christian life should never be, our emphasis should not be on them flowing into here, but our emphasis should be on us coming into here to flow out there and bring the good news. It makes no difference if Moses stays up on the mountain with the Ten Commandments. It makes no difference if Jesus is transfigured and never comes down, and we all know. It makes no difference if if he's still hanging on Mount Calvary right now and there's not an empty tomb. So we have to climb up the mountain of exploration. We have to climb up the mountain of uncertainty. We have to have a generous disposition to the things that are open-ended in the scriptures and in the history of the church and in our own lives because what God wants more than anything is for us to meet him and bring him back down the mountain. He doesn't want us bringing the stone commandments of our stances on the mountain. You've heard me say this before. If you are super concerned about our stance on things, people who have stances are not moving. We are a tabernacle. We are Salem Tabernacle. We don't have a stance. We have a walk. Amen? We're going to get it wrong sometimes. Amen? We're going to get it right a lot. All right. I feel like sometimes in Christian circles, we're so worried to compliment ourselves, but we love beating ourselves to death about things. We get it right a lot here. For 70 years, this church has been getting it right a lot here. (laughs) Romans chapter 6, real fast. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Whenever baptism has come up, and we're going to talk about this right now from John the Baptist until me standing here right now. Baptism, whenever you talk about it, it actually calls up in you almost your entire life. When you, if anybody here has been baptized as an adult, you know that the moment you were baptized, there was this unifying of God's grace over your past, current, and future life. Everything is called up into the act of baptism. And if you've been baptized as an adult, you can testify to the fact That there's, like Jacqueline said today, there's always a voice trying to reinterpret your past for you. And there's always a Holy Spirit making sure that voice shuts up and tells you who you actually are. And baptism is designed to silence the one voice and open us to the voice of the Father who says, before we ever do anything at all, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. You notice that God affirms Jesus before Jesus does anything, and Satan tries to get Jesus to think he has to do something to be affirmed. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then the devil's voice says, you are that if you can turn these stones into bread. Salem, you don't have to do anything more or less than you've ever done in your entire life to be sons and daughters of the king. And any good you do will come from already being that. It doesn't work toward being that. It comes from being that. 
But baptism is controversial. It always has been. It always will be. John starts baptizing people in Matthew, and Pharisees come, and they're criticizing his baptism, and he's telling them, you can't get baptized because for you, it'll just be this one-off thing, but you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Then years later, people go to Jesus, and they're like, hey, uh, John, they already had sort of like this American church plant mindset where they're like, Jesus, you're not baptizing as many people as John. We need to catch up. And there's this competition between who John's baptizing and who Jesus is baptizing. Lest we forget, the minute that Jesus got baptized, who's the next character that shows up after the Holy Spirit? Satan. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, oh my gosh, you're so divided. Some of you say I'm of Apollos. Some of you say I'm of Paul. And then immediately he says, listen, don't say I'm of Apollos. Don't say I'm of Paul. I don't know who Apollos baptized. I don't remember who I baptized, but we're all from Jesus. But notice that Paul instantaneously links the divisions in the church to their view of baptism. Their issues with baptism were causing their issues with each other and their issues with their leaders. Beyond the Gospels and Acts, baptism happens 87,568 billion different ways. Read it. First of all, it's a very good book. Give it a go. Second of all, they say things like, you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're baptized in the name of Jesus. You were baptized in John's baptism. You were baptized in the Holy Spirit. What we're seeing is not a prescription for how it's supposed to happen, but a description of how the church was immediately immersed in trying to figure out how to get baptism right because something in them, given to them by Jesus, knew that baptism and his cross go hand in hand. So after the book of Acts, there's something called paedo-baptism, which is infant baptism. Shortly after the book of Acts, 87% of the church to this day baptizes infants. Now, they don't all agree on how that's done. The Western church disagrees with the Eastern church, and the Eastern church disagrees with the Western church about their ordinations and their Eucharist and their baptisms because fundamentalism is not limited to evangelicals. Fundamentalism is a disease that any of us can catch about anything at any time in our life. Whenever you have an opinion, especially about the first thing you ever learned, and that opinion can never change, you might have gotten sneezed on by somebody who had fundamentalism, and now you have it. When it comes to what is better, Pepsi or Coke, my wife is a fundamentalist. <laughs> by the way, how funny is it that Theo yells hallelujah before he jumps off stuff now? Just ADD sidebar. You would think that when we hear our kids yell out hallelujah, we're like, praise the Lord. They're hearing from the Holy Spirit. But now when we hear it, we're like, don't jump. Where is he? <laughs> Sophia has confused everything in our house. There's something called credo baptism, which believe it or not, most of you probably believe in. It's called credo baptism or believer's baptism. It's when somebody gets baptized once they're old enough and aware enough to be able to confirm the creed or the faith of the church that is in Christ Jesus. 
And so they don't get baptized until they're able to stand before the Lord, before others, and confess out loud that they believe and that they renounce Satan. That's called credo-baptism. So there's paedo-baptism, which is baptizing infants, assuming that the grace that they get in baptism is the grace they need to one day be able to make those confessions. Then there is credo-baptism, or believer's baptism, where you get baptized after you already believe, and you can see where the disagreements could be between those two things. And then recently, and normally, normally I don't put too much stock in things that are about 50 years old or less in the church, but about 50, maybe 60 years ago, the church wisely came up with a medium between paedo-baptism and credo-baptism. They came up with what we now call the baby dedication. Everybody take a deep breath. You've seen me do baby dedications. I will keep. Don't just hear me say this. Put this in your back pocket and throw it at somebody if you hear them say the opposite of this. I will continue to do baby dedications as long as any mom and dad in this church want me to dedicate their baby and not baptize them. Okay? We're trying to put an extension on this house, not replace something. Get bigger. Dan, I love the tension sometimes. It's like, at first I didn't, but you know me, I'm a little dramatic, so sometimes when you can stand in an awkward tension and see faces, you just have to stay there for a minute. Like, for some of us, this is kind of fun. Yeah? What was I saying? Baptism, right. All right. Baby dedication, listen to me, has zero scriptural precedence for it. Now, some of you, now I'm not dissing it, just pay attention. Here's the thing. We don't know how to hear something up front and not make an opinion about it because we're the TikTok generation. So we hear one sentence and we already make an assessment. I'm going to say right now a long thought that's going to start here where it sounds like I'm dissing something, but over here, I promise you I'm not. So just follow me down. Just follow me down. There's no scriptural precedence for baby dedications. Some of you will say and have already said in your mind and written it on your phone and probably emailed me in the last 10 seconds... Didn't Jesus get dedicated? Unless you're going to circumcise that baby and bring a turtle dove and cut its head off and slaughter it and offer it to me for some odd reason, the baby dedications that we do are not anything close to the Levitical fulfillment of Jesus' baby dedication. Also, please don't ever try to do that. I will call the police on you, and then we will start a prison ministry to make sure you're okay. All right, listen, baby dedications as we do them here have nothing to do with Jesus' dedication. He was fulfilling the old covenant and finishing it so that something better can begin. Okay? Well, some of you just got really smart and said, I have a better one. I will see your comment on Jesus' dedication and raise you Hannah and Samuel. <laughs> I would rather you slaughter a bird here than bring your child here, have them dedicated, then leave them here forever and go home. <laughs> We're not a daycare center. We can't facilitate this. So neither Samuel's dedication nor Jesus' dedication are the kinds of dedication that we have done in the church 40 or 50 or 60 years ago. None of them have any. Listen, I dedicated some of your kids we didn't kill birds, and you took them home. Praise God on both of those. However, 
What is baby dedication? Baby dedication is everything that exists in a baptism service besides the water. Everything else is the same. The parents promise to raise the child. They promise to make sure that one day this child will confess that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. The church says we will accept this child into the family. The only thing we don't do is the water because there is a value and a good value in the church for somebody being able to remember the experience of their baptism. Unfortunately, there are people who have been baptized at 18, 19, 25, 30, who for various reasons in life will forget their baptism even before they pass away, a car accident, a disease, something that happens to them, trauma. So there's a lot of caveats to every single thing that we could come up with when it comes to baptism. There is no silver bullet. No matter how much I want there to be, no matter how much some of you may want there to be, the way to do this right is to be able to hold multiple forms of baptism so that moms and dads and people can decide what the Spirit is saying to them. Amen? Now, why do we do baby dedication if it's not rooted in Scripture? Because I believe in the traditions of the church, and I believe that even some extra-biblical things can be good. So baby dedication, although never existing in any kind of that form that we do it in in the scriptures, it is a good and wise and I believe given by the Holy Spirit to the church practice. Because it, it's diplomatic. It answers the debate between infant baptism and believer's baptism. It gives us something else. And I don't know if you know me, but I'm always, a, I will buy into the third answer no matter what it is and sometimes get myself into trouble. Pastor, is it A or B, A or B? And somebody's like, R. And I'm like, R. It's R. Whatever R is, it's R. All right. Real quick. I'm going to say real quick for the next 45 minutes. That's fine. Anybody ever see the movie The Family Man with Nick Cage? If you haven't, you're dead to me. If you have, in the movie The Family Man, nice little Christmas movie, Nick Cage plays Jack Campbell and Taya Leone plays Kate Reynolds. And at the beginning of the movie, Nick Cage is leaving to go on his big, um, he's going on some internship to, to London, and Taya Leone, she's like, we're in love, but I know if you get on that plane, I'm never going to see you again. And he goes, I love you so much, I would do anything for you, but not get on this plane. And he gets on the plane and he leaves, and he becomes a big hotshot investor in Manhattan, and they break up, and 30 years later, he's huge in, in the business world in Manhattan, and she's getting ready to move to Paris because she became a lawyer. And on a Christmas Eve, as it happens in most Hallmark films, he has a dream about what would have happened if he didn't get on that plane. They have a mortgage. They have kids. They're stressed. Sounds great. Sounds like a Tuesday to me. And he wakes up from this dream, and he's like, I have to go find her. I don't know if that was a dream or a glimpse or what, but I need to find her. I need, I need to tell her I'm sorry for getting on that plane. And where does he finally find her? In an airport. <gasps> and it's snowing outside. And he sees her at the airport, and now she's the one who's leaving. So, of course, he's freaking out. He's like, you can't leave. And he starts yelling, we have two kids and a, and a house in Jersey, and you're a nonprofit lawyer in New Jersey. And she's like, this isn't helping at all. And finally, he says this. He says, look, I'm sure if we go on our individual way, we would do just fine. But I've seen what we can be together, and it's amazing. Now, 
I thought of that because the Holy Spirit speaks to me through cheesy movies. And I thought about that with us. We can all go on our merry way and go find churches that have the exact doctrines we want, the exact style of worship we want, the exact temperature in the room that we like. Can I just tell you I'm making concessions on this also because I think it's hot and I'm letting it only be 68 degrees. And some of you are wearing like ski masks and stuff because it's 60. Let me see you in the fall when it's 68 degrees wearing all the clothes that you're wearing now. Never gonna do it. Well, pastor, when you sit under the air conditioner, no, no. We, everybody come back. <laughs> We can go find places that have the right volume and the right view on salvation and baptism. And you, there's a church, if you want everybody going to hell when they die, and there's a church for this. There's all this kind of stuff for you. We can all go on our way and be just fine. But Jacqueline and I have seen what this church can be together, and it's amazing. It's amazing. We need to have doctrines here that can be benefit our soul and make us more generous so that we can climb down the mountain and get people who couldn't or wouldn't climb up. That's what we're called to. The Lord told us at the beginning of the year that this is the year that he wants us focusing on our children. That is why we're doing this this year. We're not replacing believers' baptism or baby dedication. We're opening up a space for greater possibility. We're going to talk about this for a few weeks. We'll, we'll, we'll shoot the first, you know that first firework that goes up to let you know the fireworks are gonna start soon? I'm gonna give you that first firework now and then over the next few weeks we will talk about infant baptism and believer's baptism and how they work very well together. But this is what it says in Colossians chapter 2, 11 to 14. In Jesus also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That can get you into trouble. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul in a quick verse says there used to be circumcision now there's a different way of circumcision. There's a new sign of the new covenant. Circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. And now the new sign of the new covenant is baptism, which really points to the cross of Jesus like we read in Romans chapter 6. With me? So, Adam sins. Did Adam make a choice to sin? No, trick, no tricks here, I promise. Did he? Yes. Did Eve make a choice to sin? Did the next person born from Adam and Eve choose to be born a sinner? But were they? Hold on. An adult made a decision to do something wrong, and every infant born after that adult, now without their choice, lives in the after effects of that adult's decision. Are you with me? No, David says it in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. Like, we were born into sin. They say it in the, in the Christmas hymn. Born into sin that I may live again, the precious Lamb of God. We were born into sin. Without our 
choosing. So what does God do? He chooses a man, Abraham. And he says, in you, I'm going to bring a covenant that is going to restore what happened. So Abraham wrestles with God back and forth. Go here, go there. I don't know. This is weird. I'm, I'm going to be childless. And then Abraham looks at the stars and he says, I believe. And he confesses as an adult that he believes and it says in Genesis, and it says in Romans chapter 4, and when he believed, God, what? Counted it to him as righteousness. So God gave him something that's way better than the belief he made. I believe. And God counted that to him as Jesus' life, righteousness. Okay. But then God tells that one adult... From now on, offer the children born in your house the sign of circumcision because they're included in that confession of faith that you just made. So, Adam and Eve sin and immediately gets brought to their children without them ever choosing it. Yes? Abraham confesses and believes and God says, now that you've done this, circumcise every male eight days old because they're included in that decision you just made without them making the decision. <sighs> then Abraham goes and circumcises everybody in his house. That was a lot of adults. Abraham was 99 years old when he got circumcised. Yowchies. <laughs> I'd have been like, no, no, nope. Mm -mm. So when the first, I don't, the guys work with me, when the first rollout of circumcision happened, it was mostly adults and very few kids. But after that, it was only ever kids, infants. So when baptism got rolled out in the book of Acts, all through the book of Acts, it's mostly what? Adults. Because just like Abraham's first introduction to it, no one had been circumcised yet. So the first rollout has to be adults. Same thing in Acts. So just because the majority of the people getting baptized in Acts are adults, it doesn't mean it's prescribing that. It means it's describing the rollout of baptism that corresponds to the rollout of circumcision. But then, all of a sudden, towards the end of Acts and in 1 Corinthians, whole households are getting baptized. And no one's saying, well, are there infants in there or are there adults in there? It doesn't matter. God wants whole households to be unified. Three different times a whole household is baptized because God wants everyone in the home to be unified. One person believed and then a whole household got baptized. And they had a lot of kids back then. Babies were getting dunked. It's fine. It's fine. Jesus, Adam sins, and infants are brought into that decision without choosing. Abraham confesses, and infants are brought into that confession without choosing. How much more Jesus, who says yes to the Father on our behalf and offers us the sign of the new and what better covenant that doesn't just include infant boys but also girls as well? And everybody said, amen. And so why would the new and better covenant exclude more people than the old? 
We have to talk about this, and we will talk about this for the next few weeks. This is not replacing anything we're doing because there's nothing explicit in the Scriptures that says you have to baptize infants, and there's nothing explicit in the Scriptures that says you can't baptize infants. There are a lot of shadowy verses all throughout the narrative of Scripture that allow space for both. So I'll close, and I will close eventually today, with this idea. For some of us, baby dedication is irrational. For some people, baby dedication is irrational. If you grew up Orthodox, it's baby dedication's irrational. Why just baptize the baby? Orthodox people will say baby dedications are really just baptisms with a drought. Just baptisms without water, it's just thirsty baptisms. Some people will say, no, 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 it's perfectly rational because somebody should get old enough to own their faith before they're brought into it. Amen? There can be a lot of amening to everything I say here. We are doing something new. Sam, let me tell you, there are so many churches that can do the diversity thing with ethnicity, with age, with with gender, but there are very few churches who can do the diversity thing with doctrine, and we are going to take a shot at it. We're going to take a shot at it. This ends things, but we're going to try to do something new. Can we all say amen to that? For other people, infant baptism is completely irrational. Do you want to know how I know this? Because a lot of you have told me. (laughs) A lot of you have said this to me. Man, it's fine. And for other people, it's very rational. There are probably... I would say about five different people in this room who have asked me if I would either baptize their babies or their friends' babies. So baby dedication could be irrational or rational. Infant baptism can be irrational or rational. For all of our lives as parents, friends, colleagues, employees, every congregants, pastors, we will be operating in the irrational or the rational, but God offers us something better. Richard Rohr says this, God's love is not rational or irrational, it's transrational. And it hugs and wraps itself around all of the rationalities we could come up with and all of the irrationalities we can come up with. I need to remember this in my marriage when Jacqueline's being irrational. God's love is transrational. It goes over and beyond those things. When I'm being rational, which I always am, we also have to remember that there's something better than rational. His love is transrational. He transforms us. He transforms positions us. He transposes us. He transcribes us. He transcends our categories. So look at how small we are when we're saying it has to be this way or it has to be that way. If Jesus walked in the room when we were doing that, we would be like, nah, just whatever he says. We need, you know, back, back in the day, and again, I'm just going to, I don't really ever have Dan while I'm preaching, so I'm going to use this for a little bit. Dan and I have heard some prophecies in this room. A couple. Some of them go like this. The Lord is going to increase your tent pegs. And we're sitting there like, yo, my house is about to get bigger. Now, no one tells you that when it gets bigger, the taxes go up. We don't say that in the prophecy. But what really, what that idea means when our tent pegs expand, what that means is that our reality will begin to be able to cover more people that the banner of this church will be able to hover over more people. 
that the one holy Catholic and apostolic church built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone that shapes that structure, can cover a lot of people. And one day we'll do a different sermon on what I mean when I say a lot. But trust me when I tell you, I mean a lot of people. We don't have to worry in certain instances where the Bible allows us space to be wrong. You want to tell me that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? We have a problem. Tell me he wasn't born of a virgin? We have a problem. Tell me that God is not father and creator? We have a problem. Tell me that the Holy Spirit is no longer poured out on the church? We have a problem. But anything inside that very large framework, we work together. We don't let our preferences define our relationships. As a matter of fact, our offering our preferences up is how we have meaningful relationships. You don't have meaningful relationships. You know what you have? If you are in a relationship with somebody, or if you're in a group, or if you're in an institution where everything is the same, you're not in a church, you're in a cult. I might have a I'm going to have a slide for this. <laughs> I may or may not have a slide for this. But in a cult, oh, there it is. <laughs> in a cult, you have uniformity. And you have conformity. But in a Holy Spirit-filled culture, you have unity and you have confirmation. There are so many people who will pack up their bags and leave because something isn't their style. And, and Okay, let, let me say this. I'm asking your permission. Please, God, let me say this. Is it okay with you? When you leave church on Sunday, for the next year, think about what you talk about the most about Sunday. You talk about the style of the music. Listen to me carefully. If you're talking about the style, how long somebody opens for, how long somebody closes for, how long the pastor preaches for, how terrible the message was, how amazing the message was, how amazing the music was, how terrible the music was. If your dialogue is coming out of a, comparis a comparative spirit regarding what you liked and didn't like, you might want to ask why you're not experiencing the Holy Spirit. Because... What I want you talking about when you leave here is not this sermon or how good or bad things were, but I want you talking about how much of a joy it was to feel the Spirit on your life and see your brothers and sisters worshiping along with you. Loving God and loving neighbor is what we're about. You don't get that in a cult. People leave churches to find the exact right place where they could fit in, and what you get is uniformity, but you don't get unity. You know what uniformity looks like? White's over here, black's over there. That's uniformity. Is that unified? No. But we do that with smaller things that are just as sinister. Well, I'm going to go here because they preach, they preach biblical things here. No, no, no. They preach things that you think are biblical here. Well, they preach right out of the Bible. There's no extra biblical stuff there. 
This sermon is extra biblical. Raise your hand if you've ever given somebody advice in your life that you read in scripture and gave that advice to somebody. Do you know, Dan Underhill's the only one, did you know that the minute you read your Bible and you open your mouth, the minute, the minute Jacqueline gets a word for Rob and goes to Rob and says, Rob, I read this in the Psalms and this is for you. The minute she opens her mouth, what she's saying is extra biblical. People are like, don't give me, don't quote extra biblical sources. Every source that's not the Bible is extra biblical. What we're really saying is we want to be extra biblical, but only those things that to us sound like the Bible. And Salem, we live in a world that has now drawn lines in sand everywhere. Politics, social issues, racial issues, doctrinal issues, church issues, worship issues, food issues. I mean, you name it. We are a society entirely. I think we have confused Satan because we've divided our own self without his help. He's like, let's get. Did we get him? We didn't even go. Let's go get a drink. We're done. Like, we have to be people who can, Philippians 2, have the mind of Christ that considers the interests of others above that of our own. I have a preference between these three things, between pedo-baptism, believer's baptism, and baby dedication. Listen to me. I have what I, I personally like the most. I know what I want for my kids but I, it is my joy and my pleasure and my honor to do the other things because I believe in them, because they're good, because they're right, because they're wholesome, because they connect to the creedal traditions of the church. And I'm excited to do things that are my preference, and I'm excited to do things that aren't my preference. And for some of you, that sounds weird. Right now, some of you are like, uh, you dedicated my baby. Did you not like it? I loved it. I loved it. My preference is pizza, but I like cheeseburgers. <laughs> like, my preference is the Mets, but I like <laughs> those Boston Red Sox, baby. I love them. I got nothing but love for them. I got nothing but love for them. Listen, if you're going to leave Salem, leave because of that. Like, whatever. Let's all stand to our feet this morning. Ian, we'll read the, that Matthew verse and that Mark verse. Matthew 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open. And in the Greek, the heavens were torn open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So when Jesus was baptized, there was a tearing of the heavens. And a voice came down. Through that tearing, a voice came down. When Jesus died on the cross, it says this, And when Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were ripped open. And everything in heaven came spilling out onto Jesus. And when Jesus fulfilled his baptism, which was the cross, the veil of the temple was torn open and everything in the Holy of Holies came spilling out onto the world. Baptism, listen to me, if you forget everything I said, remember this. Baptism for the Orthodox Church is the beginning of the Christian life. Baptism for the Evangelical Church is the final culmination of you being saved. 
both are not right. Baptism isn't the beginning. Baptism isn't the end. Baptism describes the entire way we're supposed to live our life because baptism is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When you go into that tank or when you're held over the basin, depending on if I'm doing an adult or baptizing a child, you are first in an upright position because you're standing in the life of Jesus. Then somebody else, not you, brings you down into the water. And you're now participating in the death of Jesus. And then somebody else, not you, brings you up out of the water because you're participating in the resurrection. Baptism is not the beginning of our Christian walk. It is not the culmination of our salvation experience. It wasn't the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which we will talk a lot about over the next three weeks. Baptism is the entire definition of what it means to be a Christian. Somebody who's low, who's willing to go down into the dregs, who's willing to feel the weight of the world on their shoulders if it means coming up with some people. He went down into the Jordan, and he came up with us. Who are we going to go down into the Jordan for ourselves? Are we going to live our baptism life, or is it just a distant memory that age is going to one day pull out of our memory bank? How are we going to remember our baptism? Sundays is how we remember our baptism. Why? Sundays is when we see the family we were baptized into. Look around. It's a crazy family. Sundays is when we hear the story of the life we were baptized into, Jesus. And Sunday is the moment that we're given the mission we were baptized into to go be a river of life mingled with fire, blessing the world around us. Your whole life is baptism. Womb to tomb is baptism. When it rhymes, you know it's good, right? Like it has to be true. Weeks, we'll talk about this. But... When all the discussions are done and there's agreements and disagreements on the table, we have two options. We can leave the table and go find a table where everybody at the table agrees. Good luck. Or we can let Jesus anoint our heads with oil at the table and offer us a meal that takes every agreement and every disagreement and transcends them into his love and makes us people who have more real estate to love the world around us. Lord Jesus, on the night when you were betrayed, you did not accuse, but you offered. You didn't accuse, you offered. You said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood offered for you, spilled for you, pierced for you. As often as you come to this table, you're going to come to this table agreeing and disagreeing, fighting and loving, cynical and joyful, worshiping and doubting. But when you eat this meal, you'll be united to me. Holy Spirit, I pray that you descend on this bread 
and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him, and descend on us also, forgive us of our sins, and make us the body of Christ, bread for the world. That we would leave here not with lines drawn in the sand, but that we would leave here leading people up a mountain where the higher up we get, the less certain we are, but the more we know we're in the presence of certainty itself. We don't want to build our house on the sand. We want to do the work of climbing the mountain, standing on the rock, and building there in a generous place. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. You can come forward. Elder George will be here. Elder Ron will be here. Come and partake this morning. We will continue to talk about this as the weeks continue. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.